All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. You know, we're going into the new year. I don't know when you guys are going to be listening to this, but I'm, I'm looking ahead at everything that's going on in the world. And there's something that's really been on my heart recently, and that is this. I really believe with everything going on, we are at like this nexus point where, you know, this younger generation that's coming up into not only here in the U.S. where I am, but around the world, we either are at risk of losing an entire generation. And a big part of that, I'm just looking at Colorado and our education system and all the systems that are around supporting the families here. And we're at risk of losing these kids. Or we also have this amazing opportunity, this kingdom opportunity to mentor, to disciple, to sow in, to give back, to get involved and bring out the greatness that God sowed into this generation and bring it to the front and honestly have, I think, the potential of being the greatest generation ever, a generation of world changers. And with that, we're going to have an incredible conversation today with Michael Phillips. We're talking to you out of Dallas. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's such a pleasure to be with you. It's so great to have you here because what you just wrote this book called Wrong Lanes Have Right Turns. So here's a little background, and then I'll, I want to hear the whole story. So little boy, you're growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, right? You have some huge dreams. You want to be a lawyer, maybe. You want to help people. You see what's going on in your neighborhood, and you're like, you know what? I can jump in there. And then there was somebody in your life because of low expectations they crushed your dreams. They told you that is not possible for a man like you. And unfortunately, and this happens all the time, you believed what somebody else told you because they're in a position of authority. And in that, that sent you off into a very bad path, drugs and crime and prison. But like me, I was given a second chance after a horse accident, life and death, but you were also given a second chance. And it probably was for you as weighty, if not more, between living a full life or living a life, honestly, probably behind bars. And in that, you actually found one person who gave you a shot. And I think that was God's hand, which led to a redemption and a restoration, but a story of God's hand and miracles, but also not just what um, you went through, Michael but the life you're living now as an inspiration to what we can do to get involved, no matter what we do, whether we're, you know, in the government, we're the CEO of a company, we're, you know, working, you know, at the shop down the street. But with that, Michael, uh, thank you for being here, first of all. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> Man, it's awesome. I would love to just rewind the tape, bring back to that little kid in Baltimore, I could just see you looking up and just, you know, thinking, laying in bed going, you know what, here's my ticket out of this place. I'm going to go be an attorney. I'm going to help people and kind of bring us back to that place when, you know, when there was possibility in your life, when kind of the story gets started. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually loved my community. It had a sense of belonging that was absolutely amazing on every block, on every corner, even though there was plight, and even though there was some very difficult and tragic things present, there was still a beauty about it. And for me, as a young kid uh, growing up where I did, 
I had a very supportive family. My father was the anchor of our home. Uh, he was a pastor and also an owner operator of a truck uh, rig. And uh, he was just an amazing man. But unfortunately, he passed way before his time. I was 12 years old when he died. And that sent a lightning bolt uh, through our family, disrupted us, me personally, in a way that it took me years to recover from because he was my hero. And more importantly, he was a man of God and a man of faith, and it disorganized my faith when he left. And so I allowed the guys on the corner to become my pastors. I let the corner itself become my sanctuary. It was a place of comfort and safety for me because I was the little kid that all of the older guys looked out for. And even though they were doing nefarious things, they still became like family to me. And looked out for me. And so I was too naive at that time to really know what was what. Um, How old were you then, Michael? I was 12 years old when my father passed. But even earlier, growing up in my neighborhood, all those guys always looked out for me. And so they were kind of uh, also some people I looked up to because when you're coming up in urban environments or uh, low income environments or low middle class environments, you don't know what success looks like in your color. You, you have no idea. And so when you see success in your color, you want to emulate that regardless of what it is, whether it's a guy on a corner selling drugs, whether it's a, a guy walking down the street in a suit, whether it's a guy living in a big home. Uh, if it's in your color, you're like, okay, great. I, maybe I can do this because it's very difficult to become what you never see Conversely, it's very easy to become what you do see, right? And this is what I saw. These were the, the heroes of my community and of my neighborhood, even though some of them were doing criminal things. And they took me in. And dealing with the grief and trauma of uh, losing my dad, along with some of the things in my community, I took to the streets. And my education experience helped that, right? From first grade throughout almost my entire education from kindergarten to 12th grade, I was being told I would end up in jail. I was being told what I could not become. Uh, it wasn't until my senior year uh, that I was an telling adult, you that. Was it the guys on the street corner or was it oh, folks no. at school? Was it, or no. was that just the, almost the expectation? No. No, these were adults. These were teachers. These were leaders. These were individuals who were trusted to bring out my potential and, and help me shape my purpose. But because of, I believe, the times that I was in, as well as the community in which I was in, the expectation that was placed upon us was very low. And so it's difficult to overcome a soft bigotry of low expectations uh, when someone is telling you that you can't become something, even when that's your aspiration, right? And that's how it began for me. And it continued along that path. You know, I was a young male. Boys learn differently from girls. We have a lot more energy. We don't want to sit down for five or six hours, right? We want to run around and do stuff. Um, but back then, the knowledge and the information didn't afford teachers during that time, or a lot of them anyway, to understand uh, the nuances and differences of how to teach certain kids, right? And so because of the model of our education system that it's one size fits all, it truly doesn't work for every child. And that was true in my case. 
and it's still true today for uh, a lot of children. And so it was adults that was telling me this. And I had some wonderful teachers. I had some great individuals who poured into me, but I also at the same time had those negative voices that was also trying to tear me down and tell me what I could not become because they suspected and believed that this was going to be my destiny, that ultimately I would end up uh, in prison. And you get enough things going wrong in your life. You have enough tragic events in your life. Uh, you have enough traumas that are not acknowledged. Then there's no way that you can have an interruption to tragedy when it happens. And so uh, trauma that goes unacknowledged means tragedy goes uninterrupted. And that's what happened to me. Now, say that again. Trauma that goes unacknowledged is tragedy that what? Goes uninterrupted. So when I, yeah, and these, you know, these young men and women, um, when they have this trauma, when things happen at home in the neighborhood, whatever it happens to be, and there's nobody there to help them out, to be a positive influence, all of a sudden, you, you know, you know, it's interesting. Um, I do a lot of work here in, in Colorado with ACE scholarships and Colorado Uplift with work with our, our, a lot of our kids in the inner city. You know what? You know what they found? There's actually one thing, the difference between somebody kind of connecting to their potential and moving toward the goals and dreams that they want to have to have a full life versus getting sucked into the system. And it's as simple as this one healthy adult relationship. That's right. <laughs> one healthy adult relationship. So think about that. If I have one person who I can talk to, or we're that one person who's getting involved that these kids can, you know, sit there and share some of this stuff with and process with who are sewing into them, it can be a completely different outcome for that one life. Absolutely. And that's what it takes, right? That's why we need these type of uh, adults and leaders in our communities, in our schools, everywhere, really, because you never know. You really, truly never know how much you're impacting a young person's life by just being that one person, just by being that one person. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, you were kind of going through all this in, back in 1993. Is that right? So, so let's go a little bit back further. So yeah. by 1993, I was headed off to college. I had overcome a lot of those difficulties because of athletics. I was an athlete. And I noticed little differences when you become an athlete, you're, you really are treated completely different. And so that got me through a lot. And my senior year in high school, this is where I, the one individual told me I was intelligent, could go to college. My senior year in high school, my athletic director of the school, he really took a liking to me. And he spent that whole year just really pouring into my life and coaching me and telling me what the possibilities were. And uh, he gave me all these college offer letters and I told him I wasn't going to college. And he pulled me into his office <laughs> and said, you're intelligent. You're smart. Why wouldn't you want to do this? I was going to go into the military. Now, I was, you know, back then, a really great basketball player, football player, had scholarship offers everywhere. And I was I was still going into the military because I didn't believe college was for me. Uh, I just didn't believe it. You kind of you had that mindset, that track running. Yeah. Now, by the way, I, what what branch of service were you going to go into? Uh, Marines, by the way. All right. Hoorah. 
mad respect. Okay. So yeah. Marines, but that's a very different track though than college. And was the reason that you were not going to go on the college track? Cause you're, uh, you said earlier, you know, it's those things, you know, the successful things, but you can't see them that are really hard to kind of grab hold of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Was that was kind fact, of holding you back or was you all these things kind of hitting in your, your brain going, you know what, I can go there, but I really don't want to set myself up to fail. Or what, exactly. what, what was it you were thinking? I was told so long that it wasn't possible. I believed it. Mm. Even when it was staring me in my face. Even when people were sending me offer letters and saying, we want you to apply to the school or we have a scholarship for you. Even during visits, when I visited uh, colleges for scholarship offers, I still didn't believe that place was for me. I thought I would mess it up. I thought I would get kicked out. And so I thought I needed more structure. And so that's why I chose the military <laughs> over college at that time, because there's no way I can mess that up. They, they're going to get me right and I, I can make a life. And that's all I was trying to do, make a life. What's my passport to the world? How can I become a productive individual, a productive citizen? How can I not end up in jail? That's all I was trying to do. My expectations wasn't really that high. Not like they are now, but they weren't really that high back then. I just wanted to make it and not be another guy standing on the corner, you know, for the rest of my life. I didn't want that. But I, I didn't have a lot of uh, exposure, a lot of options that were in front of me. So I was choosing the military, but my athletic director, he got me straight and he's the one that really pushed me towards accepting a scholarship offer to school. And then what happened next after that? Because um, you kind of got in the wrong lane after that, so to speak. That's where it all changed. And so here I am thinking I finally received my passport to the world that I finally overcome all of these challenges and difficulties and traumas that I experienced and seen. Uh, and if you want to learn what those are, you can certainly read the book and find out. But my freshman year in college, I'm a true freshman. I'm going to be playing D1 ball. I'm excited about that. And I go home for a visit, just a weekend visit. So I'm not even really on campus. School hasn't even really started yet. And uh, I go home for a weekend visit. And a group of friends decided to take me out. We go out. We had a great time. And we decided to go to an amusement park the next day. Now, here's the ironic thing. There was no drugs. There was no drinking. Everybody wanted me to be safe and get back safely. And so we got in a car and uh, we were out all night. And instead of going home to go to sleep, we decided to drive straight to the amusement park so we can get there. And it, it, it opens up and we can spend the day there. But unfortunately, the guy that I was driving fell asleep behind the wheel and I woke up in the hospital. My lower torso got caught underneath the dash as we hit the guardrail and the hood of the car got caught underneath the guardrail. My lower torso got caught underneath the dash. My upper torso went through the windshield because the actual compartment of the seatbelt, the actual whole uh, container of the seatbelt ripped out <laughs> and ripped across my chest. That's oh. how hard we hit the guardrail. And um, I woke up in the hospital like that. My right leg, broken tibula and fibula, three toes, uh, my ankle, and my Achilles tendon was uh, snapped 
my kneecap was twisted. They said it was shattered, but it wasn't shattered. It was just twisted. And they told me I would never walk again or walk properly again was the first diagnosis. And like that, it was all over. No more basketball for me. And I was devastated. Now, I can just picture you there, right? You, you make all these decisions. You work so hard and you finally, you know, in your head, choose to believe this athletic director who's seeing something in you that you're not seeing yourself. But you're like, you know what? I'm going to take this step. I'm going to take this scholarship and I'm going to give it my best. And then all of a sudden that dream is ripped away. You know, other people that are there right now, and it could be their life, could be their health, could be their business, could be something similar. I, I don't know what it is. But when you're in that play, where was your faith in that, in that time of your life, Michael? I was still very angry with God over the mm. death of my father. The only thing that really kept me, kept me, kept me was the prayers of my mother and my grandmother. But I personally wanted nothing to do with God. And when the accident happened, it was even worse. And I laid there trying to recover. And it took a long time to recover, not physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I really didn't want anything to do with, with the Lord at all. I felt abandoned. I felt alone. I felt left behind. That's where I was. But my mother, my grandmother, those women, they prayed for me consistently. They modeled love in a way that's just undescribable. And I think I know it was their prayers that, that got me through a lot of my bad decisions after, after all of this happened. And when you're going through that, and it could be somebody right now, whether you lost a business due to the pandemic or uh, a loved one, you don't know what to do with your pain. And what I learned is, is that the pain that you do not transform, you will transmit. And I was starting to transmit my pain. So that anger, that bitterness, that resentment became fuel for me to do the things that I did. And that's where you really have to fight to not let your pain be transmitted, particularly to the next generation. <laughs> you got to transform it, which means you got to give voice to it. You got to find out where it's coming from. You got to find out what you're truly dealing with. And it was about a craziest year of my life, craziest year and a half of my life that set me on that journey. I can relate. You know, a little bit of my story. Because back in, it was similar time frame, uh, buddy, when in 1994, I was in the military, just got orders to go to Top Gun and had a accident wow. and I lost my medical and I was out of the Navy and wow. everything I had spent, my, I was a Navy pilot. Everything I'd spent my life pursuing was over, gone. And I love what you said, you know, because, uh, when we're talking about healing and, and transforming what's going on, it's not just physical, right? It's spiritual, it's mental, it's emotional. It's how we view ourselves, how we view the world, view with God. And I think in that, you know what, A, we, it's hard, but sometimes we have to be patient. But also, I'm guessing, you know what, if you try to 
go through that transformation alone, let me just speak for myself. I, there's no way I could succeed in having even a shot at, you know, transforming even little steps in that process and doing that myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm in the same boat. I tried to do it alone. I tried to carry it all alone and it didn't go well. <laughs> it, didn't, it did not go well at all. Yeah. So when you say that didn't go well, I can imagine you're recovering all of a sudden that that path forward has now been completely, you know, blocked off. What was next for you once you were finally out of the hospital? One of my uh, old friends I used to play um, the NBA summer league with, he played overseas uh, and he was like a journeyman overseas basketball player. And he had this great camp. So I went to work for him, you know, just working with kids and teaching kids, but working with the children kind of triggered my dreams, right. Of what I was going to become. It was kind of like a trigger for me, even though it, it was wonderful helping the kids. I still kind of felt, man, that was my shot and it's gone. Right. Here I am in the air cast, you know, and so I insulated myself and I, and I cloistered myself and I stuffed all that pain down. Right. And ran into an old buddy who went through something similar, lost the scholarship and he had went back to selling drugs. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to work with you. And we formed a partnership one night and it blew up both of our lives. It, it, it was something that we, you know, we probably never thought in a million years it would have happened. And so I spent a year and a half doing my best impression of Scarface. <laughs> in, in you know, in that world, under the standards you had adopted at that point, you were actually succeeding though, weren't you? Oh, very much so. Very. I mean, I mean, you know what? There is some natural entrepreneurial skills that people have and you can apply them toward a street corner business or, you know, <laughs> building a tech company. But, when you got Absolutely. the skill set, you got the skill set. Absolutely right. And that's the way we thought. And what's, what's amazing about it, all of the people I encountered, most of them anyway, were highly intelligent, capable, and effective people. They were good at what they did. Any of them could have ran a Fortune 500 company, to be honest, or division, or their own business. Uh, it was incredible. And that's the way that we thought about things, which is why we scaled so fast and so huge that caused federal offices to come and <laughs> do what they do. But that one year and a half of my life was when I got into the wrong lane and started to believe that this is my life. This is the best it's going to be. Uh, I got to make the most of it. I set goals on how I was going to, you know, scale up and go into legitimate businesses and things like that. And it got out of hand so fast and we made so much noise so fast and unfortunately uh, caused a lot of people to suffer in what we were doing and helped a lot of people too. But we can't negate that we also caused a lot of people to suffer. And it was the craziest one year and a half of my life. And I just didn't know what to do with my pain. And on top of that, I started using church as a cover. I started using church as this good boy type of, um, church boy, you now, know, Monica. Was that just spin, Michael? Were you doing that intentionally or was that you just? Absolutely. Oh, okay. So this is, all right. This is <laughs> a, uh, this is an offensive play that, right. hey, I got to go change my image. So I'm going to go start giving more, 
yeah. and, and being part of the church to negate some of the perceptions over here. Every Sunday. Every that was Sunday a business out. decision more than anything Absolutely. else. Every okay. Sunday I went to church. I think if a lot of people were real listening out there, that is part of why they go to church, if I'm being honest. <laughs> right, 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 right. I feel obligated, not because, like, man, I'm excited. But you know what? If you are going to church, you anybody listening, keep going, because it took a long time. But God got a hold of me and transformed my life. But I kept showing up. No, church to do that to you. There were moments, man, in certain services where I just you can't deny God's presence, right? There's no denying. And there were moments where I just walk out <laughs> because of his presence. And I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want him to touch me. I didn't want any of it. I just leave me alone. But you can't deny it. Uh, but it's amazing how uh, God's love will find you wherever you are, whatever posture you're in. Uh, it's an incredible thing. Okay, so um, you said before, you know, you're starting to get the attention of the feds. Was there a point when uh, they kind of caught up with you? They did. So I don't want to give too much away, but <laughs> but they did. They raided my mother's house and they blew up uh, our entire organization. We had taken over an abandoned school. We called it Schoolhouse Rocks. We had an entire block of row homes that we operated out of, along with the school. Uh, we took over the entire area. We were providing crack cocaine, uh, not only in the Baltimore area, but all the way from Virginia to New York. Uh, we had a whole distribution pipeline. We were moving a lot of weight, and we decided to start scaling the business and go into different areas, and that's kind of when the feds came in. And we were under the cover of another very notorious drug dealer uh, who the feds also arrested at the same time. And so the whole thing comes crumbling down and I decided to run. And I get in my car, I go to the job that I had where I had money stashed and I go get some money and, you know, I'm headed to Florida. I'm just, I'm headed to Florida. I don't know anybody, I have no contacts, but I'm trying to get as far south as I can to make a move to decide whether or not I, I want to go, you know, live abroad somewhere or, or let all this blow over. And my mother calls me on a Nextel two-way. That's how far we're going back. And she says, the feds raided her home and I should come and turn myself in. And I told her, there's no way. And so I get off the two-way. I said, I'll call you back from a payphone. Imagine they had payphones back then. And I get off the two-way, and I told her I would call it back from the payphone, but I did. I went and got something to eat, and I left out of that restaurant. And I was at this very busy intersection. I had made it all the way to Virginia, and I'm headed to, towards Richmond, or you can go towards uh, Virginia Beach. This is the intersection I'm talking about. And if people know that on the East Coast, it's a very busy intersection, uh, highway. And so I have to make a decision. If I keep going towards Richmond, there's no way I'm turning around because you got to go a little ways down before you can make the turn. And so I decided for whatever reason, as I'm headed south, to you can turn yourself in. Like, where are you going? It's federal. They're going to find you. There's nowhere you can run. And so for whatever reason, I decided to turn myself in. But I was in the wrong lane at the time. Uh, I was in the wrong position. 
It was very difficult to do. So I had to roll my window down and start flagging people down saying, hey, can you help me get over? Can you help me get over? Everybody did. Everyone let me over. And I was able to make the right turn. Like when you made this decision, there was like this sense of urgency. It was. I had to like, you're like, okay, not only am I going to turn myself in, but like, I need to go do this now. I had to do it. I had to wow. do it because had I not done it, I would have kept running and I would have kept running for the rest of my life. And I was tired of running. I was tired of running. I was tired of living beneath my potential and who I knew I was created to be. And it wasn't me. That was not my life. It was not the way I was built. Uh, it's just what I decided to believe. And so I kept doing it. But that wasn't me. The things that were instilled in me from my parents and my grandparents, and my family, and that life wasn't me. I just bought into it and started doing it because it's alluring and it's enticing and it's manipulative once you get into it and because it makes you believe that's who you are. But anywho, with urgency, I turned myself in. With urgency, I turned myself in and not knowing what the outcome was going to be. And much to my surprise, when I turned myself in, I found out that we were being investigated for fraud. It wasn't even for drugs. And that the entire charge was a RICO charge. So this is racketeering uh, conspiracy charge that they give to you know mob families and stuff like that and cartels. I'm you know 18 years old. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I'm not the head of some cartel or some mob family. But you had been channeling Scarface. Oh, I had been. <laughs> <laughs> I had been. <laughs> but they slapped us with a RICO charge, and I was facing 30 years to life without the possibility of parole. And that, that was the charge. And when I called the attorney to turn myself in, they advised me not to do that, and I did it anyway. I went straight to the jail and turned myself in. They had a warrant out for my arrest, and I, so I thought I'd do something smart. And I went to the Howard County Detention Center, like it's in—it's not even in Baltimore; it's like in Columbia, Maryland, somewhere. And, <laughs> and I said, "Well, I'll go here. This is like cream puff. I can sit here for a while, and they'll, uh, you know, just hold me here, whatever, till they bring me back into the city." But they didn't. The Fed sent me out to this place called The Cut, which is more like San Quentin. And I spent six months in pretrial detention uh, in that facility in a 23-7 cell. And you'll never forget the eerie clank of a prison door when it closes. You'll never forget that moment. It echoes. And it's as almost as if the door is telling you that this is it. And I thought that my destiny was going to be written on those concrete walls and on those floors. I thought that was it. And I spent six months in this one little cell with a small window about 15 feet above me. And I got out my cell one hour a day for six months. And it all because, you know, of the decisions that I made. And I didn't pity myself. I didn't get down on my knees and pray, God, help me take me out. I didn't do that. I just said, this is it. And I need to figure out how I'm going to, one, take the case, 
take a plea, take, you know, just go ahead and say I'm guilty and, and throw myself on the mercy of the court because I had no record. I wasn't a violent offender and it was my first offense. And so I figured my time would be minimum. But when they said 30 years, I said, oh, God, this is <laughs> this is not what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> wow. This is not what I thought it was going to be. I did a lot of soul searching in there. Michael, in the, in the time that we have left, you know, you were given a second chance. Tell us real, real quick about what that second chance was and how you were able to maybe kind of put that in context to what you're doing now. Absolutely. On a Sunday, on a Sunday, which doesn't happen if you have any type of deal with the criminal justice system, nothing happens on a Sunday. But on a Sunday, the guard comes, the CO comes out and gets me and you know, I'm asking 80 million questions because I'm like, where are we going? I'm thinking I'm about to catch a beating or something. And uh, they put me in a, a van and they're not, they're not answering any questions. And so we get to a federal building and they take me up. We go into the judge's chamber and it's the prosecutor. Uh, it's a gentleman that I don't know. I didn't know who he was at the time. And it's my attorney and it's the judge. And they sit me down and the judge sits down and says, son, do you want to go to jail? Do you want to go to school? And I said to myself, uh, <laughs> I think I want to go to school. And so he explained to me that uh, this gentleman by the name of Bill Owens had a program called Give Me a Chance, where he worked with adjudicated youth who had the potential to go to college instead of prison, and that they wanted to give me an opportunity to go into that program. And that day, they released me into the custody of Bill Owens. I was never officially charged, uh, so I have no record. Um, never went to trial. Um, it's as if it didn't even exist. The judge actually sealed the record, and they shipped me off to Oral Roberts University uh, to be a part of this program, and that was my second chance, and it changed my life forever. Uh, and a lot happened between, you know, where I really had my transformation and my change but at a revival service at ORU, mandatory, by the way, you had to attend or you couldn't get, get your grades. I still was angry with God. After all that, after getting set free and everything, I still was angry with God. And I said, if I have to go to a revival service, I don't, I, I, I'm just going to get drunk. Now, I, was ne I never did really get drugs because I was an athlete and I always wanted to just be aware of my environment. But that day I decided, you know what, I'm going to smoke weed and I'm going to drink if I got to go to church. That's how bad I didn't want to go to church. And I did. I smoked five blunts. I drank a fifth of Grey Goose vodka and I chased it with a half a case of Budweiser. That's exactly what I did. And I went to a chapel service in that condition. And I didn't feel anything. I didn't hardly hear nothing. I was in my own zone, my own world. And they started singing How Great Thou Art. And all of what I had done to try to anesthetize myself from the pain I was feeling went away. I was sober. I was completely sober. I could feel God's presence. So frightening that I ran out of the room. 5,000 people in this auditorium and I run up the middle aisle and I leave. And I ran back to my dorm room and God met me there. And that day I gave my life to him. And I've been preaching and helping people ever since. And what I've learned through all of this is that, you know, if you're going to be a leader, it's not a role you play. It's who you are. It's a life you lead. 
And that's the spirit and the heart of leadership that we need today in every strata of society. Individuals will understand how important it is to be who you are and to speak into the lives of people that you've been called to because you never know the difference that you're going to make. It could have been a person like me. It could be another child who could do more catastrophic things if that one person doesn't touch their life because God uses people. And so I'm a living testimony to it that wrong ways really do have right turns. Well, and you know, and today it's pretty cool because I was asking you about what's going on. You you just moved from Baltimore down to Dallas and yes. you are working with uh, the TD Jakes Foundation and you're the chief engagement fulfillment officer. I mean, you and your amazing wife, uh, uh, she's a doctor and you two together are out there on point. You're on purpose. You're on mission. And uh, this is just, I'm only a third of the way through it. I'll just be honest, but it is fantastic. You know what? We, we need to almost do a part two, just because, you know what? <laughs> yeah. You really laid the foundation for your story. And we kind of got through the point here, Michael, of, you know what? This is when, you know, God, God got involved. I mean, yeah. what's the chance of a guy who had a multi-state distribution network, crack cocaine, brought up on RICO charges, gets nominated for uh, this program instead of going to jail and being prosecuted, where the charges are never even brought up, and you are given an opportunity to go to college. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I, I, you know, that's just God's hand in everything. And I, and I want to say something for everybody out there listening. You know what? Michael's not unique. If you know my story, I am not unique. Here's the amazing, awesome thing. God loves every single one of us with equal passion and fervor. You know what? There are things that God's prepared for all of us to do. And how we get there is can sometimes can be really challenging. I, you know, uh, this quote that I underlined, can I, I want to just read this, but you as we kind of wrap up, but you, you had a quote in here from uh, Thurgood Marshall yeah, in the beginning that I underlined here. And you said, this is what Thurgood Marshall said that you quoted. A man can make what he wants of himself. If he truly believes that he must be ready for hard work and many heartbreaks. Yeah. And you know what? It's about, you know what? All this stuff that we get through God, you know, never promises us an easy life. No. But what he does promise is that he's going to walk with us through all this stuff. That's right. Which means that we can live in the hope, which is not a distant thing. You know, the hope of Jesus is a real, it, it is firm, it is foundational, it is a promise. And in that, there's so much we can do. But I, I'd love to have you back. How do people connect with you, find you, Michael, follow up with you, uh, get your book? Like, how, how do we do that? Yeah, you can go to michaelphillipsbook.com and read more about the book. You can connect with me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, at Mike Phillips Official, on Twitter, at OfficialMP74. And uh, love to connect with all of you and uh, certainly would love to come back. It's like we, we just skimmed it a little bit. <laughs> we have so much more to talk about. <laughs>
No, let's, I, I would love to do that. So folks, just watch the podcast. We'll bring Michael Law back because you know what? I, there's so much to talk about, especially what's going on in the world right now, Michael. Yes. Right? I mean, how many of us just judge other people, whether they're a different color, whether they have maybe different beliefs, maybe they voted for somebody different than us. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know what we're doing is a society, we're moving more and more toward just putting a label on somebody, throwing them in a box. And if we do that all the way back from the beginning, it's that mindset that is going to lose a generation. Yeah. And there's a lot that we just need to be talking about and trying to understand and have empathy and, and also turn toward the Lord and say, God, what is the will that you have out? You know, wherever you're living, what is God's will for the inner city of Denver? What is God's will for the inner, you know, all these amazing young men and women that are here? Yeah. Right. And what we are called to do is love God and love others. And in that, what that means is we are called to action. And I think, unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is one of my things that drives me crazy. Because what I heard my whole life growing up, Michael, is the good news of the gospel, that I have my salvation. Mm -hmm. But how does the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father who art in heaven, right? Thy kingdom come. And what happens is a lot of pastors are out there talking about the fire insurance part of the gospel, the good news, but they're not talking about the kingdom mandate once you join the family. Yeah. And that means yeah. you don't just go to church and you know what you do? You work on yourself so that you can go out and bring I don't, you know what, whether you're managing a, a team, whether you're called to work with the homeless, whether whatever it is, our life is more than just our own personal faith journey. It's about how we bring that out into the world. And in that, that's what I, I would really like to talk to you because that is what you've been doing since you were given the second chance, Michael, and that's a, that's just inspirational. So I, I, uh, man, I love that. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly we'd love to come back and have that conversation because it's really, it's truly not about us. Uh, that's really what I, I could sum it all up, man. What I learned from all of the mistakes I've made, all of the wrong turns, it's not about you, dude. And it's really not about us. It's about the next generation. And so this is why we have to you know, shift our focus, shift our efforts, make sure that we are not losing a generation, but inspiring a generation. That's what we need to be doing. All right. Love that. All right, my friend, you keep knocking them alive out there and I look forward to talking to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You got it.